0: My name is Favorite. I work at UMass. I've been here since August 2016. So it's been five years, five beautiful years. Um, and today's reading is from John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. OK, let's read together. do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish wreaths of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with the water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tested the water now, becoming, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servant had drawn the water new, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Okay, so now I'm going to pray. Let's pray together. I don't know if I can get through this prayer. That's what I told Lois, uh, because this is an emotional day for me. But before I do, I just want to say something about Pastor Robert and Melanie. Um, I um, Uh, just thank them for the Christmases and Thanksgiving. I spent some other amazing Sundays uh, in their home, but most Christmases and Thanksgiving, when I was a student, I couldn't go home. So they hosted me and they just taught me how to open my home as well. And I just want to thank them for that. Okay, that's my speech. Let's pray, let's pray together. Dear Father, how great is your name. Today we praise your name. Our hearts are filled with joy and sorrow. Um, um, We praise your name. Thank you so much for the miracles that have happened in this house of worship. Thank you for the souls that you saved in this house of worship. Thank you for people from all over the world, people speaking different languages, people from different tribes and nations who came here and received the gospel. Thank you for the last 22 years um, of gospel preaching, faithfulness, people receiving you, and people sharing the gospel with others. Thank you for all the students who have walked in here and left transformed. Thank you for all the families who have walked in here and are still working hard, making home for their children, making home for their spiritual children. We praise your name today for your work is incredible. What you have done here is beyond our imagination. It's a miracle. God, we praise your name for what you're going to do in the next 22 years. God, we are yet to see more miracles, miracles of students walking in here, receiving the gospel, sharing the gospel, miracles of campuses being transformed, miracles of this town being transformed, miracles of healing, miracles of just people getting to know you and having hope in the gospel. We praise you for what you are going to do, God. And and so, God, I also just want to thank you for Pastor Robert and Melanie. Thank you for giving them the strength. Thank you for giving them um, the support that they needed to carry out your mission. Thank you for calling them to be here, God. And thank you for their children. Thank you for uh, calling them to follow you as well and having a relationship with everyone in the family. And so, God, I, we just... Praise your name for their faithfulness, God. You are the one who built this house. We know that, but we thank you for using them. What a privilege to get to know them. And so as they set out to um, their next um, calling, God, I pray that you give them wisdom. I pray that you give them strength. God, I pray that we'll continue to love them and care for them and and, and just, you know, um, be there for them. And as we transition, God, transitions are not easy, but we pray for unity, we pray for wisdom, we pray for guidance, I pray for the elders, God, I pray that you be with them as they make decisions, I pray for church members, I pray that we will participate, that God, we will not be just here that we'll just be a part of what is happening here especially as we receive students uh, this september Uh, so thank you for um everything you've done and so god i also just want to pray for haiti today it just breaks my heart and you know everyone's heart to see what is happening there god we are grieved for the People who have lost their lives, we are grieved for the people who are wounded. And God, we pray for relief, we pray for comfort. God, we pray that nations will come together in in unity and and God, um, support Haiti. And uh, we know that there is another earthquake that is potentially coming. And so God, I pray that you stop that one. God, I really pray that you give us a miracle and stop that one and, and just bring comfort to the families that are already suffering. So thank you for this beautiful Sunday, and I pray for Pastor Robert as he preaches. God, it's not going to be easy, um, but I pray that you'll be with him as, as you've always been, and I pray that we open our ears and hearts to the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Sorry, that was a long prayer.
1: Maybe seated. Thank you, Favorite. If you're wondering, you're like, I don't know how to pray. Just take Favorite to coffee, and she can help you. That's no joke. Uh, we're blessed to have her as a prayer warrior in this congregation. And, uh, all right. So let's do this thing. It is hard. This is a. Um, a monumental moment in my life, um, in the life of my family, in the life of this church. Um, as many of you know, we we came here in 1999. This picture that I think is going to come up here is of uh, the day that we crossed the state line on July 15th, 1999. And um, Melanie is taking the picture with a camera that has film in it. Okay. So there were no selfies, so there was no way for us to really take a selfie. Um, but um, me and Corey and Cooper are standing there, and they were like two and four. Uh, Kayla wasn't even in existence yet, and uh, so she came in 2000 after we had lived here uh, for a year. Uh, this next slide is our prayer card, and um, the, the address is wrong, um, the P.O. box uh zip code is 04, and it had 02 on it, so some of our funding at the beginning went to Amherst College, and they had to forward it, and we didn't even know what the, the zip code was when we made the card, um, but that was our family uh, when we came here uh, to plant Mercy House. And we teamed up with a, a, a family, uh, the Green family, uh, Joe and Wendy Green and their, their children, uh, we were kind of thrown together. Uh, they were from the area. They were from New Salem. Both of them had spent time at UMass. Um, and we knew we had spent all of, you know, 48 hours together, and we were now a team. Uh, and we were tasked with uh, planting a church from scratch in Amherst, Massachusetts. And we knew enough that we knew we needed to pray. So we prayed a lot. Uh, Joe and I prayed a lot together. Uh, We fasted. Uh, We prayer walked. We walked all five campuses at different times and just asked the Lord to open a door for the gospel on these five campuses. We we walked the streets of Amherst and Northampton and Hadley and South Hadley, just asking God to open up the door uh, for the gospel in this region. Uh, We also knew we needed to talk to people. We needed to engage with as many people as we possibly could. We went to the Chamber of Commerce in Amherst, and we said, we're a church, well, sort of, we're trying to start a church, we'd like to join the Chamber of Commerce. And the executive director at that time, John Cool, which is an amazing name, um, he's like, I don't know if we let churches join the Chamber of Commerce. So they had a special emergency meeting of the board, and the board decided, yes, Mercy House could join and be the first church of all time to join the Chamber of Commerce. And so we did, and then they reached out to us and said, hey, we need volunteers for Taste of Amherst. And we're like, okay, we'll do it. And so we showed up for that, and then we became the volunteer force uh, for, the, for the town. I mean, anything, everything that happened in town that needed volunteers, we were the volunteer force. And we engaged with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people through volunteering in various uh, events and We even brought teams in in the summer from other places of of college students to help us with the volunteer labor in order to engage people and build relationships. In September of 99, we we knew that campus ministry was going to be very important to our church. Uh, We didn't know how important, but we knew it was going to be important. We are in a college town and it was September. and So September really is the the tax season, as I call it, of, of campus ministry. And so you need to hit the ground. And so we set up a table at UMass, and for two weeks straight, from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., we talked to anybody who would come up to our table and talk to us. We talked to a few staff, a few faculty, but mostly we talked to undergrads. Hundreds of undergrads coming by. What is this? What are you guys doing? Here's some information. I did like a little pamphlet, and the picture on the pamphlet was actually students from Oklahoma that we'd worked with in the place where we had come from. We were like, we're starting a church. So I'm not inviting you to something that's actually in existence. I'm inviting you to, to help us start something new. And so we had an informational meeting in the Boltwood Inn, uh, down on the Common, about the, you know, the least strategic location for a college student to show up in. But we'd done a lot of advertising in the community, and on the, the, you know, on the UMass campus especially, and so we were praying for 10 people. And we got a room for 20, and 30 showed up. And we were just packed into this little conference room in the Boltwood Inn there. It was called the Lord Jeff at that time. And it was so exciting. People were so excited. There was Christians that came. There was interested people that were not yet Christians. And I did some preaching. We did some worship. And and I'm sure the hotel was wondering what the heck's going on in that little room. There's 30 people packed in there, and they're singing their lungs out. And we also talked to them about starting a church, being a part of the core of a new church start. And so, how did we get from that <laughs> to this? How, how did we get from this little fledgling group of undergrads to a thriving church? That has a facility, and has leaders, and has families, and has kids ministry, and has a a, a disciple-making ministry in the lives of students, and single working people, and families, and children, and and now teens. Like, we're opening up a ministry, disciple-making ministry for teens. How did that happen? And honestly, I'm not exactly sure. I'm not exactly sure. As of today, we've been in this valley for 8,067 days today. And there were many of those 8,067 days that I thought, this place is not going to make it. This church is not going to make it. We're not going to make it. Many <laughs> of those days. Even as... as uh, Recent, uh, 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 you know, at the year 10, we just thought, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. We're, our church is not going to make it. There's just no way that this thing is going to actually be established. But God did it. He did it. This place is a miracle. Now, every church is a miracle. The planting of every church is a miracle. The sustaining of every church, I don't care where it is, I don't care if it's in the Bible Belt. If that thing is able to stay together and be on mission together, it's a miracle. But it is especially a miracle in this town. If you look around and think about how many churches have been planted in the last 22 years, one, this is it. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. You know, there are many passages in the Scriptures that have come alive for me in our time here. There's so many passages. I'm like, oh, that's what that passage means because of what we've experienced here. One of those passages is from John chapter 2. John chapter 2. I hope you're there in your Bibles or on your phone. But this story shows... The making of a miracle. Not just the miracle itself, but the making of the miracle. And there are parallels in this story, I think, that help us understand the story of Mercy House. But more importantly, what's in this story tells us about who Jesus is and how he works. So there's parallels for us to understand Mercy House. But more importantly, this story reveals who Jesus is and how he works. The setup is very strange. John 2, starting with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever you want. He tells you." One of the things we see here is Jesus' humanity. He's invited to a wedding. He attends the wedding with his mom and some friends. In first-century Jewish culture, a wedding would be a week-long affair. John lets us know they're on day three of the wedding, and there's lots of eating and lots of dancing and, yes, lots of drinking. Jesus is right there in the middle of it. He's enjoying himself with his friends and with his family. And then there's an emergency. Not the kind of emergency you would expect to be brought to the attention of the divine son of God. I mean, it's not a sickness that needs to be healed or a storm that needs to be disabled, you know. It's it's a wine emergency. And it seems pretty serious. Cana, we have a problem, and the problem is we're out of wedding wine. Mary the mother of Jesus seems very concerned (laughs) about the wine emergency. It probably means she's closely related to the wedding party. It most likely means Jesus is closely related to the wedding party. And what's a first century Jewish wedding party without wine? It ain't no party. I'll tell you that. It's also probably cause for shame on the host family because they haven't prepared properly to host the party. If you think about weddings you've been to, think about having gone to the ceremony and then there's some hors d'oeuvres that, you know, they really don't fill you up and they're just not that great and, and, and you're waiting for the meal, you know. And, but, but while you're waiting on the meal, the wedding party's taking pictures. And it's taking like three hours, right? I mean, I've done like a hundred weddings. I've I've experienced this many times, many times. And everyone is so hungry, you know? And It's like, what are they going to be done? And then they're toasting, and you're like, oh, I'm just so ready to eat. Well, think about in that moment, the caterer comes out and says, I am so sorry, but the food has spoiled, and we cannot feed you. But please eat some more hors d'oeuvres and keep dancing you're out of there. The party's over. (laughs) There's something similar going on here, where they're at day three of a five-day wedding, and it's about to disband. Now, Mary goes over to Jesus, expecting Jesus to do something about it. Now, this is some evidence that commentators would point to to say that Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, is probably dead, because she's not going to Joseph. She's going to Jesus, the oldest child, who is the man of the house. And so it makes sense that she would go to him and say, hey, I need you to do something about the wine emergency. Now, at first, Jesus doesn't seem too willing to do anything about it. He's like, why do you concern me? And then he says, it's not my time. Now, that's code in the book of John. There's a lot of it's not my time talk in the book of John. Over and over, Jesus says, it's not my time, it's not my time, it's not my time, and then you get to the end of the book and he says, it is my time. And the time he's talking about is the time of his death on the cross. And so in this setup, John sets up that motif of, it's not my time. Now, Jesus' mom seems unfazed. She merely turns to the servants that are attending the wedding And she says, do whatever he tells you to do. And she just walks off. And Jesus decides to do something. And this ends up being his very first miracle, or sign, as John calls it. You've heard it said that uh, you only have one chance to make a first impression. Well, Jesus only has one chance to introduce his miracle ministry. This is the first one. And so this is how he chooses to reveal his miracle ministry. And it says so much about Jesus, and it says so much about what he is doing. Now, five points this morning. We won't be here as long as you think we are, but here's the first one. Jesus performs miracles to meet needs. He performs miracles to meet needs. Jesus' miracles are not like a magic show. They aren't for shock and awe. For my next trick, I will turn water into wine. That is not what Jesus' miracles are about. His miracles meet a real need. Now, usually the need is a sickness that needs to be healed or a demon to exercise or a deadly storm to dismantle. This need isn't quite as serious as those kind of needs, but it is a need. It is a human need, and Jesus' miracles always meet a need. The miracle of Mercy House met and continues to meet a need. That need is starvation. People in Amherst are starving and they're starving for good spiritual food. The poverty here is gospel poverty. It is the most serious poverty that anyone could experience is gospel poverty. There is a great lack of gospel witness in this region. Uh, Much of our mission has included the feeding of an unchurched generation, the most unchurched generation in American history, in the most unchurched, or one of the most unchurched regions in the United States of America. This place is a gospel desert, and we've been feeding these hungry mouths. One of the first times this really struck me, this was early on in the church plant, and a a college student by the name of Rebecca was I had grown up in New England, uh, in Massachusetts, in a Unitarian church. If you know anything about Unitarians, they talk about all different religions and try to kind of unify some of the truth claims in those religions into one kind of semi-cohesive kind of uh, uh, belief system. And she had grown up in that, and she noticed that the one religion that this particular Unitarian church never talked about was Christianity. And so it piqued her interest that the Unitarians weren't talking about Jesus. So when she moved in southwest as a freshman, she started hunting Christians to talk to him. She heard that Steve Meridian, who was also a UMass student, was on her floor, and she literally went up to his room, knocked on the door, and he opened the door, and he's like, you know, what do you want? And if you know Steve, you know, I'm sure it wasn't a warm welcome. You know, he's like looking at her, and she's like, hey, I heard you're a Christian. And he's like, ah, uh-huh, yeah, I am a Christian. She says, "Do you know where I could be part of a Bible study?" Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I go to my pastor's house on, uh, you know, Tuesday night, and they are studying this workbook. And I mean, you want to go to that? Yes, I want to go to that. And so Rebecca shows up on our doorstep. We invite her in. I talk to her for a minute. And I start realizing she she is not a Christian. And I show her this big fat workbook called Be Transformed. And it's like five days of homework every week. And I'm like. Rebecca, you're welcome to do this, but, I mean, are you sure? She's like, yes, I want to do it. She gives me ten bucks and takes the workbook. She comes every week, every week. She does her homework, does her homework better than the Christians, honestly. Um, she's asking good questions, and one of the things we would do at that point, because the church was so small, we would take communion in my living room with, with uh, the, the folks that were part of that study, which was pretty much the whole church. And whenever we would do that... She would always abstain. She would not participate. She knew that she wasn't a Christian yet and that she didn't want to take it and, and, and we'd explain that to her and so she would respectfully just kind of decline and she would just sit there in the living room. And then one night, I was passing out the communion and I see Rebecca. She's getting up and she's coming toward me with her hand out. And she's taking that bread and she's taking that cup. And she was telling me more that. You know, it wasn't she saying, I just, I'm hungry, I need a, a bread snack. She's saying, I want this gospel. I'm hungry for this gospel. And as I watched that gospel transform her, and then later Justin, who she was dating, who she then married, who they now live in, in Manhattan, the, he, he's an elder there. They are serving there. We had coffee with them last week. And the gospel has taken root in their lives it has radically transformed them forever and transformed their kids and transformed their church through the way that they ministered to their church. Jesus met Rebecca's need. And he has met so many needs just like that. Many a person has come up to this front and held out their hand for a piece of bread that I knew were seeking and coming week after week to hear the gospel, and that was their way of letting me know, I want Jesus. And that they had received Him by faith. They received and had met their deepest need. Jesus does miracles to meet needs. Now, He also... does miracles in a way that includes the participation of people. That's what, probably what I love about this story, but, but there's many other miracle stories that also include people. I mean, think about the disciples passing out the bread to the 5,000. They get to participate in the miracle. Think about the blind man that has to go wash his eyes off, wash the mud off of his eyes in the pool of Siloam. He gets to participate in the miracle. Think about the man by the healing pool that has to Get up and take up his mat and walk in order to see the miracle. And so, in this story, we have these unnamed servants that get to participate in this miracle. Verse 6 Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So, this is the second point. Jesus invites others to participate in his miracles. Jesus is always he's always inviting the willing to participate in his miraculous work. I mean he could have laid hands on the jars and said wine come forth and it would have been wine but that's not how he does it. Instead he chooses to do this first miracle in a very understated way he's literally off on the sidelines watching the big reveal of this miracle as these servants get to be front and center. Now this filling up the stone jars took some time. Um, First of all, they're made of stone, so it's not like they could pick them up, carry them to the well or to the river, fill them up and bring them back. So they had to shuttle this water. Around 150 gallons of water they had to shuttle to these six stone jars. That took some time. And remember the urgency of Jesus' mom. (laughs) She's probably tapping her foot. And like, Jesus, when are you going to solve the wine emergency? And he's like, I- I'm working on it. Next, bring the next gallon over. And they're filling up the six stone jars. This brings me to the third point. That the participation in Jesus' miracles requires hard work and sometimes feels very mundane. So he's, 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 he's meeting a need, he's including others, And sometimes the work that he asks you to do is really hard and sometimes feels mundane. Filling up those water jars was not easy. It was not glamorous. I'm sure the servants wondered what Jesus was doing. How could all this carrying of water solve the wine emergency? But the orders came from Jesus, and so they did what he asked. Uh, The challenge is that they don't understand that Jesus is doing a miracle. And so they're just carrying the water and they do it and they do it well john gives us the detail of that they filled it to the brim (laughs) love that that they shuttled and shuttled and shuttled and shuttled and carried all this water until each of these stone jars was absolutely full much of the last 22 years has felt like carrying the water all that volunteering in the community all the advertising, all the one on one meetups with people, leading Bible studies, sometimes poorly attended Bible studies, training leaders, and then training more leaders when those leaders graduate and are sent out, raising money year after year, raising more money to buy a building, spending hours trying to fix the building. I don't know how many hours spent scraping the tiles off the floor in the basement or hanging off ladders to paint the parish house one summer, counseling people in crisis, trying to work through conflicts and misunderstandings, loving people well and then sending them out to go and serve somewhere else, and standing here preaching over a thousand sermons, carrying the water. This brings me to the fourth point, that the servants participate in Jesus' miracles with other servants. These servants are not alone. It's a group of servants. Again, we don't know what the conversation was like between them. They're dragging all this water to these ritual purification jars. Why is he doing, asking us to do this? My shift ends at 9 p.m. I, I should be gone right now. Are we getting double time for this? carrying the water. And God has been so gracious to us to raise up fellow servants throughout all these years to join us in carrying the water. Lois Graham Mason, that girl can carry some water. She came in the summer of 2000, just one year after we had been here. She lived with us for a while and And she came and it was like, help us out for one year, Lois, and then now she's been here 21 years. She's done campus ministry, crisis counseling, managed our facilities, cooked, cleaned, made airport runs. Made a lot of airport runs. Took care of kids, took care of my kids, you name it. She's done so much in this congregation. She and I have done so much setup and breakdown that she and I, we don't even have to talk and communicate about it. We just know what we're doing. We're having a whole another conversation about a whole another 10 or 15 things while we're just sitting up tables, doing the chair thing, because we've done it so many times. I can't look at you, Lois. So <laughs> My own kids have carried a lot of water. Um, they're here this morning on the front row here, Corey and his wife, Rebecca, and Cooper, and Kayla, Uh, All three of them have served in so many ways in this church. Kayla quietly and joyfully set up communion every Sunday for years and did it with great joy. And Then she'd run down, help with the babies, then come back up and help me greet people. Cooper played guitar in worship and pitched in. In lots of setup and breakdown and night security, a taste of Amherst, in taking care of kids, whatever was needed. And Corey ran the slides every Sunday for sermons and for songs for years on top of a multitude of other ways of serving. They've also shared their mom and dad with hundreds of people. It's part of being a PK that mom and dad's minds and hearts are oftentimes with other people, loving other people, serving other people. And so they know what that's like to carry the water. These kids can carry the water. And so many others. Staff members like Cindy Bishop, who led worship, did Bible studies, did campus ministry, did bookkeeping, whatever was needed. Church members like Tim Hall who helped take care of the building and who cooked meals every Sunday for the whole church, every Sunday for a while, and then handed it off to some other crazy people that did that every Sunday for the church. (laughs) Volunteer leaders like Dan and Sarah Moylan who took on the kids' ministry and developed it into something that parents actually want to take their kids to, which has now grown into this beautiful ministry. Steve Marigian, who I mentioned earlier, is a polymer science. Well, he did undergrad physics and then polymer science. I mean, he was here like 10 years trying to get all of his degrees. But he preached. He cleaned toilets. He did the bookkeeping. He would spend eight hours in my basement every Sunday doing the bookkeeping because we couldn't afford a bookkeeper. Our current staff team knows how to carry the water. They have done an incredible job of leading us through covid like nothing I've ever seen. They can carry the water. The elders in this transition time, they're carrying the water. There's a lot of stress and pressures, a lot of uncertainty that they're having to bear up under, and they're doing it on top of busy lives and busy families, and so many, many more. But no one has carried more water than my wife, Melanie. That girl can carry the water. Honestly, you guys can, can, you can replace me. I'm, I'm worried about you replacing Melanie. She has carried so much water. She has done so much behind the scenes, which makes it even more beautiful because only Jesus knows about it. She's carried the water. Her weeks are a constant flurry of disciple making, crisis counseling, hosting people in her home, event planning. Leadership development, gift-giving, note-writing, and chief encourager and counselor to the pastor. I would not have been here 22 years had it not been for her. And the encouragement and the counseling that she's provided for me, and this was all on top of everything else that she's done to raise our kids, to, to manage a home, to love friends and family. Well, she's carried a lot of water and it's worth it. All those folks I've mentioned and many, many others that have carried the water, I think they would agree with me. It's it's worth it, and it's worth it. And this is my fifth point, because you get a front row seat to the miracle. You want to you have a front row seat to the miracle? You carry you some water. You carry you some water. Check this out. This, this is so amazing, this part of the... Description here, verse 8, He said to them, Jesus, now draw some out of it and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Again, Jesus has facilitated this miracle in such a way that he's just off in the shadows watching the big reveal. The servants have faithfully filled the jars to the brim. They think that their job is done, or they think so. And Jesus says, I got one more job for you. I want you to take some of that water out of of one of the jars. I want you to take it to the master of ceremonies. And so they take it. And as, as they take it to the master of ceremonies, he tastes, he tastes the water. And as he does that, as it touches his lips, it becomes wine. No one else in the room knows what's going on. Except those servants and eventually the disciples. John makes sure that the reader knows. The master of the feast does not know. And the servants of the feast do know. They know. There's been a miracle, and they've had a front row seat to this miracle because they've carried the water. This is such a great picture of what it's like to be heavily involved in the ministry of the church, both for paid staff and highly involved volunteers who carry the water week in and week out. They get a front row seat to. The miracle. Melanie and I and our kids have carried a lot of water and we have had a front row seat to so many miracles. When I would come home, this is when Kayla was probably 14 to 18. I come home from church after two services. I come into the kitchen, she's sitting at the at the kitchen table, and I sit down and she's like, Tell me about the conversations you had today, Dad. Because she knows I have a front row seat to all the miracles. And she just wants to peer over the edge and just see what God is doing. And when she went to college and she joined her church, became a member, signed up for serving, and, and she said, I want to get into the inner circle of those who are carrying the weight of the ministry. And the reason she's doing that is because she wants to see the miracles. She knows if you carry the water, you get a front row seat to the miraculous. When Corey graduated from college and got his first job, he immediately jumped into a marketplace ministry in his company, and he on top of that joined the, the youth ministry at his church. Why did he do that? He wants a front row seat. He wants a front row seat. Cooper, when he graduated from college, he jumped into an apartment ministry, going door to door, talking to people about Jesus, praying for them, inviting them into discipleship. Why did he do that? Why would he carry water like that on top of a busy job and starting in a new town? Because he wants to have a front row seat. He wants to have a front row seat to the miracles of Jesus. But it's not just about a front row seat. It's that you get to serve the one who first served you. You get to serve the one who first served you. This is how Jesus frames service of Christians. Matthew 20, 26-28. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. He's, he's talking about Christians. Be, your, be a servant. Why is that, Jesus? And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why he carried the water. Because he carried the water for you. And he carried some water you could have never carried. His service of saving us from our sin is why we then serve him. Not to earn anything, not to pay back anything out of unadulterated gratitude and worship to the one who first served us, the one who gave his life as a ransom for us. He frames that as an act of service and says, this is why you serve. This is why you carry the water. And his service met the deepest need that we could have ever had. And he met it with this act of service. He did the hardest and most impossible of all work, which was saving us on the cross. Jesus carries the water of salvation by allowing himself to be brutally tortured, unfairly tried, publicly humiliated, barbarically murdered. He says that was service. I was serving you. I was offering my life as a ransom for many. And that service that he provided in his death on the cross ushered the miracle of the resurrection, the grand miracle, as C.S. Lewis calls it. And so all that carrying of the water, of his death and his burial, gives way to the miracle. It gives way to the good wine. What's also in this story is, it really becomes a parable. And it's about God's redemptive story it might be called the parable of the backwards wedding. In a normal wedding, you bring out the good wine first. And when he says good wine, he means, yes, it's tasty, but he's, he's also saying it's highly alcoholic. And you get your guest feeling a little tipsy, and then you bring out the poor wine. And the poor wine is cut, it's cut with water. And you do that to extend that for five days <laughs> of drinking and dancing and eating. And so, this wine, this, this particular wedding, is backwards. They brought out the poor wine first, and then they bring out the good wine, the tasty, the more alcoholic, intoxicating kind of wine. What's Jesus mean by that? He says, he's saying this is the story that God has been writing. The redemptive thread that you see throughout Old Testament and into new. All those prophets, priests, and kings who were making predictions and proclamations about what was going to happen, they were the poor wine, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited until the culmination of all those promises, all those predictions, and finally, when Jesus got there, it was the good wine. And so he's standing there in that wedding and they're celebrating and they're drinking deeply and imbibing this wonderful, tasty, intoxicating wine. And he's saying, It's time to party. Jesus is here. He is the good wine. And this is the gospel we've been preaching for 22 years. Some of you here today, you've been drinking poor wine. You, you've been drinking the wine of this world. You've been trying to solve your problems with the things of this world. I'm telling you this morning, what we're offering you in the gospel is the good wine. Drink it up, drink it deeply, receive it by faith. This Jesus who's died on the cross for your sins so that you could be forgiven and you could be reconciled with God and brought in to the wedding celebration. Receive that today. Many have done so in this room. And I pray those that have not yet done that this morning, you would do that. You would receive it. Or at least start a conversation with somebody about this. Say, what was that guy talking about? He's talking about wine and stuff. I don't have a clue. What what was that? Open up a conversation. Because we're offering the good wine. Notice that the, the whole reason for the sign is so that people would believe. Verse 11, you see that? This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You see, that was the deepest need he was meeting. Yes, he was meeting a human need of a wine emergency, but he was seeking to meet the deepest need of forgiveness of of sin, reconciliation with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, those of you who have received the good wine, you now have the opportunity to carry the water. You have the opportunity to carry the water. If you've drunk the good wine, it's in part because others have carried the water for you. They made it possible for you to hear the gospel, to respond in faith, to be made a disciple. They've been carrying the water for you. And through that, God opened your eyes to the good wine. And you drank deeply by faith and now you have the opportunity to carry the water for others to have a front row seat to the miraculous and and there's no doubt if you're a christian god's calling you to carry the water and definitely no doubt if you're a member of mercy house or a regular attender god is asking you to carry the water and some of that is organic right you're you're merely meeting the needs that come across your path. Uh, you're helping someone move. You're tutoring a child. You're inviting a neighbor for dinner. You're remembering a birthday with a gift. You're bringing a meal. But it's also serving in this church. Right? We, have, we have so many needs right now in terms of service. We need a lot of people to carry the water. If you think about the opportunities for service here, you can think about it in four quadrants. We've been talking about these for the last few weeks. We need folks to disciple people that are going to be coming into these doors in a few weeks. So we need discipleship group leaders. Many of you have gone through the discipleship materials. You're ready to go. Let's carry some water. Uh, You've heard V stand up here and JD stand up here and talk about the need for MH kids and MH uh, teens and youth. Let's do it. Let's, Let's carry the water. And just in general... Sunday service, like people to greet, people to help people with name tags, people to to deal with the the mask mandate and all the things that are going to be part of that. They need set up and reset up, and we need folks to carry the water. And when you don't carry the water, you miss out. You miss out on a front row seat to the miracle. So I'm asking you will you fill those jars? It's hard work, I know some days feels mundane. Will you carry the water? Will you carry the water of shepherding our children and our youth? Will you carry the water of discipling college students? Will you carry the water of helping steward the facility? Will you carry the water to to greet newcomers at the door? Will you carry the water of setting and resetting Sunday morning chairs? Will you carry the water of deacon ministry or elder ministry? Will you carry the water of giving generously to fund this ministry? Will you carry the water of praying faithfully for God to continue to work in and through this congregation? Will you carry the water? And will you serve in the name of the chief servant? Because this is the ultimate reason. Yes, you get a front row to the miracle. But the ultimate reason is because you're serving the chief servant, the one who is first served you. And many have said yes to carrying the water. Your staff, your elders, your deacon candidates that are in the process of being trained, they'll be done next week. Your discipleship group leaders that are, even this summer, leading groups and discipling people. Your family group leaders who are serving. Folks that have already signed up. I think we've got 25 or 30 or so that have signed up for MH Kids. And the list goes on. Many are serving. If you're not yet serving and you're part of Mercy House, join the servants. Join them in carrying the water. And if you're here from another church, you're here visiting, go to your church and carry the water It's your church. And do so to have a front row seat to the miracle. And do so in the name of the one who first served you. This has been my role in this place is to carry the water. I'm so glad that I did it because I've had a front row seat and an opportunity to serve the one who first served me. We are reminded of his service to us every time we come to this table. this I don't know, this moment, I've had a lot of time to think about this because I stand up here every week and institute this, but think about it. The chief servant, Jesus, he's hosting the table for the disciples on that night. The night on which he's going to be betrayed. The night on which the rest of the disciples are going to scatter. And in, with such grace, he takes the bread, he breaks it, he gives it to his disciples. He says, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's letting them know He's going to carry the water. That next day, He is going to die on the cross for their sins. He's going to perform an act of service that they cannot perform for themselves. And in the same way, He took the cup, and after He blessed it, He gave it to them, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of of me, his talk of covenant, his talk of many, both of those point to the covenant community of the church. And he's like, There's going to be a whole bunch more servants that are going to join this community of servants to carry the water and to be a part of the miracle that started 2,000 years ago and has made its way into this place in 2021. And it's going to continue until Christ comes back. Which is what he told us to do. He said, you keep doing this. You keep breaking bread. You still keep taking the cup until I come back. And so my prayer is you will do that. Not just the ritual of this, but you will continue to preach Christ. You will continue to sing Christ. You will continue to show Christ in the bread and the cup until he comes back. Let's pray. God was so grateful that you took the form of a servant. (laughs) You laid down your life, gave your life as a ransom for me and for these in this room. God, we're so grateful to have received the good wine. And so as we receive this bread, we receive this cup, Lord, we remember, we remember the moment when the good wine showed up and you died in our place, you rose from the dead and you invite us into this wedding between your bride, the church, and you, the bridegroom. So Lord, we we celebrate today. We we grieve, yes, but we celebrate because we are, are remembering you, who you are, and what you've done to bring about the good wine. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.